All right. My name is Danielle Alvarado. I'm an immigrant rights attorney at the Community Development Project of the Urban Justice Center here in New York. Uh, I have the privilege of working with grassroots organizations and worker centers across the city. Uh, my team focuses on immigration relief, a whole host of things, but with an emphasis on workplace abuse-related claims. And we have the good fortune in our office to work very closely with our workers' rights team uh, to work across uh, traditionally siloed practice areas to expand the, the opportunities for immigrant workers to, to vindicate their rights, uh, both in the employment and labor context, as well as immigration. Good morning, everybody. My name is Marissa Centino, and I am the Enforcement Program Manager for the National Domestic Workers Alliance. I organize domestic workers specifically around in New York State, specifically around enforcing their domestic worker bill of rights. Um, I lead up a cohort of peer worker leaders. Uh, we train them to understand and to talk to other work domestic workers in the field about their rights. And we host a, the only uh, domestic worker legal clinic in conjunction with the Urban Justice Center that focuses on domestic worker rights. Um, and our worker leaders are the ones that bring in those domestic workers who need to enforce and exert their rights uh, here in New York City. Hi, everybody. My name is Daniela Contreras. I am an organizer with the National Domestic Workers Alliance. I'm also a community specialist, um, engagement, community engagement specialist um, that gives, uh, working with a program that works for um, house cleaners um, that gives benefits. And um, also, I was also a former uh, domestic worker. And I'm, a, I'm sorry, I'm a spokesperson for the Me Too movement and Time's Up. Thank you so much, everybody. Um, also, I am Christina Velez. I am uh, the staff attorney currently for the NYU uh, Immigrant Defense Initiative, which was born to um, uh, respond to some of the challenges facing uh, immigrants in the NYU community uh, following uh, the recent election. Um, but I also serve on the New York City Bar Immigration Committee. And uh, in that capacity, Laura asked me to participate here um, and help um, help uh, with the panel. So um, some logistics. Uh, Laura, who's sitting up front, is going to be collecting note cards that have questions that anyone may have. OK, great. Thank you. And we'll uh, try to get to as many of those as we can um, at the end of our panel. Um, to begin with, I think we're going to talk about sexual harassment in agricultural work. Um, and Judge Safer Espinosa is going to lead us uh, through that section of the discussion. Oh, thank you. So my retirement from the bench is now spent uh, working in the rural south of this country. Um, so it's really a particular pleasure to be here in my hometown. Uh, at the Bar Association, where I spent so many happy hours, and um, not happy hours, but <laughs> happy hours, and with all of you who are you know, either seeking and or implementing uh, solutions for sexual harassment at this particularly critical time in our history. But I'm here today to talk about a workforce that most people never even see or think about outside the spotlight of attention of the public, hundreds of thousands of women and girls are laboring in the fields and other agricultural workplaces in this country where sexual harassment and sexual violence are endemic. And those abuses take place at the far end of a spectrum of degraded work conditions. And at that other end, they are joined by forced labor, systemic wage theft, and egregious health and safety violations. The most reliable studies that have been done have shown that up to 80% of female farm workers have experienced sexual harassment and or sexual violence. Those are the people who harvest and grow the food that we all eat. 
And within that population, young women, recent immigrants, women working alone, and indigenous workers are the most vulnerable of all. Now, as far as the legal framework goes, farm workers face more than even the usual systemic barriers to seeking justice um, and reporting perpetrators. In exclusions that were race-based in origin, uh, they are not covered by many of the protections that are extended to other workers, including the National Labor Relations Act. And for the vast majority, immigration status, coupled with the nature of seasonal and migrant labor and indifferent or, in many cases, hostile local authorities, add additional layers of vulnerability and fear. And when the extraordinary happens, as it did recently in Florida, uh, where EE, wonderful people from the EEOC pursued uh, a terrible case of serial rape and, um, and violence against women and achieved a tremendous 17, uh, record-breaking $17 million uh, award and all kinds of corrective actions, the company just simply uh, closed up shop and um, the principals moved elsewhere the local prosecutors remained unmoved. Um, happily, however, and of necessity, really, I'm, I'm here to talk about not reasons for despair, but rather to tell you about a solution that farm workers themselves are forging that is not only eliminating and preventing these abuses with unprecedented speed, but is now serving as a model for workers in many other sectors from the garment and janitorial, construction, industries, to fashion models. So the program was born in an area of Southwest Florida that, as I said, federal prosecutors called ground zero for modern day slavery less than a decade ago, and where Governor Jeb Bush abolished the State Department of Labor. It has never been reconstituted, so I was really happy to be here uh, with my colleague here from a functioning State Department of Labor. Um, uh, however, the Fair Food Program has really dramatically shifted the balance of power, and as a result, workers are no longer having to leave their dignity in the fields. Uh, in order to feed their families. And I do believe that pictures are worth thousands of words, so I'm going to uh, share a short video clip that was done by CNN's Freedom Project uh, last year. Some of the information's a little bit outdated, but it will give you the general uh, idea, and it talks about the enforcement of human rights through market-based consequences. Five thirty a.m. in Immokalee, Florida. It's a dark morning under an overcast sky. As Alejandrina Carrera begins the forty-minute walk to her sister's house to drop off her two small children. It's too early for them to go to school, and they're too young to stay home alone. But Alejandrina has a bus to catch. Every day, hundreds of migrant farm workers, like Alejandrina, come to this parking lot in the center of town, where they board old school buses that take them to the fields. Hey. Alejandrina picks tomatoes on a farm about 30 minutes away. She likes her job now, says she's treated with respect. But it wasn't always that way. Alejandrina came to Amakali, from Mexico more than 20 years ago. She was alone, just 14 years old, small, scared, and extremely vulnerable. She says it didn't take long for someone to take advantage of her. It happened at one of the first farms she worked at. She says her boss promised her a better job in a warehouse. But as soon as she got in his truck, he drove to a remote part of the farm, and she knew she was in trouble. He told me, if we don't do this the easy way, we'll do it the hard way. I was afraid and trembling, 
He tried to abuse me sexually, but he didn't get to because another worker heard me screaming and came to help me. The next day, the boss fired us both. Agricultural workers are without a doubt the most vulnerable workers in the United States and I would say across the world. John S. Forms is co-owner of Sunripe Certified Brands, where Alejandrina works today. Let's talk about reality here. This is farming. This is agriculture. Agriculture has, from the very early days of man farming and needing to have work, has been full of opportunities for abuse. His family-owned farm is one of the largest in the U.S. and was the first to join the Fair Food Program, an innovative initiative that has been held up as the most comprehensive social responsibility program in U.S. agriculture. Today, nearly every farm in Florida has signed on. The program combines a set of high standards that includes monitoring the farms and educating the workers. Buenos dias. Leonel Perez works for the Coalition of Immokalee Workers, or CIW, a nonprofit organization that developed the Fair Food Program. Today, CIW is holding a training session with farm workers, teaching them not only what rights they have, but what to do when those rights are violated. Leonel and the other educators here have first-hand knowledge because they are all former migrant farm workers themselves. The most important thing for me is to be able to talk to other workers because I have a shared experience. I work in the fields too, and now we can work together to end worker abuse. The Fair Food Program works because it has market consequences. If a farm violates the code of conduct, it is suspended from the program and cannot sell to participating buyers, which includes some of the biggest fast food restaurants and grocery stores. It all makes a big difference for those at the bottom of the supply chain, like Alejandrina. You can work freely. You're not going to be harassed. You're not going to be insulted. You're not going to be forced to work. There's more respect now. These days, Alejandrina wakes up in the morning, happy to come to work, proud to talk to her kids about the company she works for. And that, she says, is the biggest change of all. Amaral Walker, CNN. So. So the fair food uh, program agreements that are referenced in that video uh, now cover 35,000 workers in eight states. And almost all of those states are south of the Mason-Dixon line. Um, they've been won through almost two decades of campaigns by consumers and workers that are focused on the food retailers at the top of the supply chain. Now, the structure of those legally binding agreements addresses the downward pressure from the top of the supply chain that has traditionally depressed wages and working conditions for workers at the bottom. Very simply put, retailers must commit to pay a premium on their produce and to only source from growers that are certified by the Fair Food Standards Council to be complying with the program's code of conduct. And growers, for their part, pass along the premium to workers as a wage supplement and agree to implement the code. So to understand the mechanisms um, that work to make this all function, you just have to think about the following thought experiment. What, what would a social responsibility program look like if workers were the architects, if they got to design it? Well, first, you would have standards that are written by workers who really are the experts on how, when, where, and by whom their rights are normally violated. So the code of conduct takes the law, which is woefully inadequate in agriculture, and builds beyond it. It has requirements for direct hire, which undercut the very dangerous power of contractors and subcontractors and makes growers like the one that you saw in the film, directly responsible for workers' wages and working conditions. It also has zero tolerance provisions for sexual harassment with physical contact of any kind, uh, and expedited confidential complaint mechanisms that protect workers from retaliation. 
then you would have education, like the education that you saw that is as deep and wide as possible across the program. That happens at the time of hire, before workers ever set foot in the field through video and written materials created by the coalition, and through interactive worker-to-worker -worker education sessions that happen every harvest cycle. That has given the program tens of thousands of worker monitors. They're the frontline defenders of their own rights in the workplace every day and through their interactions with the formal mechanisms of, of monitoring. And that formal monitoring is done by the Fair Food Standards Council, uh, the organization that I'm privileged to direct. And we do it in a, a combination of audits and 24-7 complaint line response. And even though our audits far exceed the normal corporate social responsibility standards, including interviewing over 50% of workers at any given location, um, in announced and unannounced visits with unprecedented access to supervisors and company records, there's still snapshots of, uh, at a moment in time. So we have a supplement of a 24-7 complaint line response that's, that's like a live video feed onto the farms. And it's the opposite of a cold call center because it is carried on the person of our bi and trilingual investigators and it's always answered live by the same auditors who go to the farms and who know the conditions that workers are calling about. The council is responsible for all investigative procedures and we are the ultimate finders of fact, which as you can imagine is satisfying um, to a former judge. We are also responsible for, uh, for uh, drafting and implementing corrective actions and complaint resolutions and the decisions are reached through an expedited complaint resolution, um, alternative dispute resolution procedure and can be, but almost never are, appealed through arbitration. We've had exactly one appeal so far, um, which we won. Over 50% of all complaints, now well over 2,000 of them, are resolved within two weeks and 80% within a month. And, you know, as somebody who spent their entire life in the, in the, uh, either as a litigator or a, a judge in the legal system, um, that is lightning speed. It's breathtaking. We, we do referrals to law enforcement and other agencies as appropriate. Now, behind all of this, as you also saw, stand the market consequences of the program. If growers are suspended from the program um, because they have committed a zero-tolerance offense or have re repeated failure to comply, they cannot sell now to 14 major corporate buyers. And the power of the purchasing order, we have found, is a remarkable motivator of compliance. So in closing, just a few words about the results that this has produced on the same farms uh, very same farms where workers a few short years ago were abused with impunity, cases of sexual harassment with physical contact of any kind by supervisors have been virtually eliminated. We've confirmed only two such cases since the end of our second season of program implementation in 2013. Additionally, workers tell us about vast improvements in their work environment. So Alejandrina is not alone. Last season, auditors received no worker reports of even verbal sexual harassment at almost 75% of fair food program farms. Now that didn't happen just because people signed a piece of paper. It happened through constant monitoring and enforcement, and in addition to corrective actions that address the audit finding, individual cases of sexual harassment, now over 70 of them, have been handled with an average resolution time of just under three weeks. And zero tolerance means exactly that. Everyone who has been confirmed to have committed sexual harassment with physical contact of any kind has been terminated. For supervisors, that means a ban on every fair food program farm for at least two years, and a second offense would result in a lifetime ban. Nobody has gone to that. Nobody, we've had no recidivism. Um, additionally, dozens of supervisors have been disciplined and or terminated after findings of verbal harassment. 
And the last thing I want to say is that each of these corrective actions provides an opportunity for popular education that we carry out on the farms, because it's important that supervisors not just disappear, that systems not just change, but that at the time of the resolution, we go on the farms and reinforce to workers that it was their complaints that brought about this change and that retaliation was not tolerated. That also serves as a great cautionary tale to any uh, potential violators in the audience. And all of this translates into incredible peace of mind for workers like Alejandrina who know that the best cases are the ones that never happen. So thank you. Thank you so much, Judge Safer Espinosa. That was an incredible story. And thank you so much for introducing us to this model. Um, which we should look more closely at replicating <laughs> other um, areas. Um, I want to turn over next to um, Marissa and Daniela, who can tell us a little bit more about how sexual harassment looks in uh, domestic workplaces and how uh, workers are organizing themselves to respond. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so just to give a little bit of background, uh, at the National Domestic Workers Alliance, we organize house cleaners, um, nannies, and caregivers of elderly and persons who are disabled from across the country. We're a national organization, and we function both through a, an affiliate members model. Uh, so community-based organizations are become members who have a domestic worker uh, membership base or also organize in part domestic workers themselves. And then we also recently enrolled an individual membership program where workers who do not have access to um, affiliates uh, who organize them, they themselves can become uh, members as well. And all of this is sort of uh, fast moving and changing in order to really address the um, the way that the industry itself uh, is changing as well. But domestic workers really are at the heart of uh, making all other work possible. Um, there's 2.5 million nannies, housekeepers, and home caregivers who go to work in our homes every day making it possible for us to do what we do every day, knowing that our loved ones and homes are in good hands. Um, they are the ones that take care of our children. They maintain our homes. They take care of our elderly and uh, disabled persons. Um, it's some of the most intimate work that you can do um, at all. And uh, similar to the uh, industry of farm workers, um, it is in isolation um, and has been historically excluded from uh, major components of labor right protections um, due to institutionalized racism. Uh, and 10 years ago here in New York State, domestic workers were able to organize. They fought a long battle. It was 10 years for them to be able to win the first of its kind in this country, a New York Domestic Worker Bill of Rights that looked to fill um, certain gaps in labor protections for domestic workers. Um, and since then, it's eight years out, we still have a very hard time ensuring that workers uh, know their rights and are able to effectively enforce those rights. And so my role as an organizer is to uh, work with worker-led campaigns um, that would strategize, that strategize around how best to help domestic workers enforce their rights. I train up workers that can go out into the field and, and effectively talk to other workers in the field by meaning our parks, libraries, churches, uh, even our own neighborhoods and our own homes um, in multiple languages. Um, drawing upon their own experiences as a domestic worker in whatever um, sector of the industry they they uh, 
have experience in and to be able to effectively communicate what are the current enforcement mechanisms that they're able to access. Um, we have a partnership with the Department of Labor um, in order to have investig an investigator dedicated to domestic worker um, cases so that through kind of a repetition of um, um, of working domestic worker cases, we kind of build up this institutional knowledge of who domestic workers are. Um, it's misunderstood frequently. The work we do, uh, the work that domestic workers do, um, is in people's homes. And oftentimes employers both don't recognize themselves as an employer, but also they don't see their home as a workplace. So they don't feel that they have any responsibility to uphold the workplace safety um, and standards uh, within their home. They feel that uh, oftentimes that what happens in the home is, you know, uh, privilege to their own privacy to this home, um, when in reality we have an employee who, uh, if they ever experience sexual harassment, which is rampant um, in the domestic workplace, um, it happens much too often. And because of the isolation, um, we actually don't have very good information about how often it happens. Um, when workers come forward to us, uh, we find that they are both have a high barriers towards um, even accessing justice because by the time they come to us, um, the incident w is too old. Um, it happened uh, too long ago. Or their employers um, have threatened them in ways that uh, make their any of their um, ability to move forward uh, impossible. Um, the power differential in a, in a household within the employee and employee is so high. Um, oftentimes, it involves a lot of mental trauma um, and a lot of mental abuse um, so that workers themselves cannot extricate themselves from the situation. Imagine if you were a live-in worker and if speaking up meant you both lost your home, you became homeless, um, your credibility, your ability to find a new job because your um, next job is extremely reliant on the references of the previous job. And that's where working with the Department of Labor is so key because we need to fortify the anti-retaliation components um, and make employers understand that retaliation itself is unacceptable. But we're still trying to look for um, effective and practical solutions. What does retaliation look like? Um, it could be someone who is being fired, but how do we address someone who has been blacklisted or who is refusing to provide a reference? Um, these are all sort of areas we're trying to work out at this moment. Um, and with the oncoming of the Me Too movement, um, workers really, domestic workers really only talked about these issues uh, in privacy with their closest friends. And if those friends don't have the information to say, I know where you should go, um, it almost happens by magic, which isn't, should never be the case, that that friend says, you know what, I have a number to an organizer who can speak with you with respect and can offer you some resources and some options. Um, my goal is that all workers in New York State understand that they have a, a an avenue um, or um, someone that they can reach out to that would be able to put them into the right hands um, like ourselves. Um, and that's why we have the worker-led campaigns uh, in order to have as many um, hands on the ground as possible. Um, what I would like to do is to pass over to Daniela, who has a 
personal experience, but also knows what happens when we highlight the voices of domestic workers who have decided to come forward, um, highlight the voices of women in all low-wage um, work sectors when they decide to come forward and what happens to them when they say, I want to say something as well. Hi, as I said, my name is Daniela. I was a former um, domestic worker. My first job was when I was 16. So I was pretty new in the country. I barely knew any word English. Um, so I got a job as a nanny. And on my first job, probably in the first weeks, I almost got raped by my employer. Thankfully, someone knocked on the door and ran out. I ran out of, but then what happened afterwards? I didn't tell my parents. I was ashamed. I was scared. I didn't know where to go. So I just stood quiet for more than 15 years. Just up to recently, last year, when the city had their first hearing, um, something just came back to me. I started, I, I was hearing stories from other workers, but then mine, I totally decided to forget, to forget about it until I was thinking about the others, but I never thought about myself. And suddenly we're talking about, as we're, we're sitting together, we're talking about it, and then just, it came back. And I'm like, it happened. It happened. Me, me too. Like, I've been there. So, um, and that's the reason, like, I decided to come forward as a victim, but I also, because I knew there are a lot of women out there who are going through this, and they just don't know till this day where to go. Some of them, we went to a workshop um, for their rights, uh, domestic worker rights. And many, a few of them, when they came forward, they were like, yes, I've been there too. My employer is doing this to me, but guess what? He's a police officer. So I can't complain there. Where am I supposed to go? So we give them options. Um, it takes a while for workers to come forward. As uh, Marissa said, there's a lot of retaliation. They get blacklisted. Um, it, it's, it's a constant fear, immigration status. That was my first one when I first, I was undocumented. So it was a fear language barrier. Uh, but it's, I'm sorry, but it's great, um, to know that people like you as in this whole panel is supporting us. And just being here representing domestic workers gives me the power to go back out there and tell them, look, this is the place. This is where you need to come. This is when you need to come forward and you will be believed. Cause that was my fear. What if I tell someone and they're not gonna believe me? Um, I'm new, I don't know anything. But just knowing that I um, you guys are hearing from me, thank you. And I know that a lot of workers will come forward. It takes, it takes a lot of effort. <laughs> Mm -hmm. But it'll happen. Oh, sorry. I just wanted to, um, well, thank you, Daniela, for being um, amazing always. But I, I just wanted to address some of the specifics to what we encounter in the law. Um, for domestic workers, it is a he said, she said scenario. Um, so there is no human rights department that a domestic worker can go to. Um, their employers are also their judges um, uh, in, in situations where workers have come forward. They have, uh, we have encountered workers who have been physically threatened, who the uh, spouse uh, will call the police on the worker themselves and the police indicating uh, to the workers uh, that they have no power in the situation and it would actually probably be convicted or charged um, if the, the person moved forward um, in their claim that they were um, assaulted uh, or harassed. Um, and in terms of the law, so for the New York Domestic Worker Bill of Rights, domestic workers under state law are, protect, are, are protected uh, uh, under the sexual harassment um, component. So, but what happens is that um, 
for example, at a city level and at a federal level, um, because of the size of the employment uh, place, many workers are this uh, domestic workers are a single employee of an employer, um, and the the bar is for four or more employers, um, especially at a city level. And then there is even a higher bar, um, I believe, at the federal level. But there's a whole bunch of lawyers here that can correct me on that. Um, that was a win for us, um, but it also makes it difficult for workers to figure out where can they go um, and who can they turn to. Um, so for us, it's a constant challenge to try to change policies that make it easier and also address the real life workplace issues of domestic workers. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, um, both of you, um, for the information and for sharing your personal experience as well. Um, it's really meaningful to hear that. Um, I think we're going to probably address something. Oh, that, that there was a recent change in the city. Yeah, yeah. And that was in part because of the testimony that Daniela gave um, at the sexual harassment and sexual harassment uh, hearing. Um, that wasn't addressed before, even when we addressed uh, asked for it. I think we're going to hopefully we'll talk a little bit more about that like um, it's towards the end of our panel. Um, I want to make sure that we all hear because I know that um, not everyone here is an immigration attorney or probably very few of your immigration attorneys um, and uh, immigration law does uh, provide um, some mechanisms for addressing some of these problems. Um, and that are very important protections for people in the low-wage workforce. So I'd like um, Danielle to sure. <laughs> lead us through that. Thanks okay, so great. much. Um, are there any immigration attorneys here? Ah, okay. Um, anybody heard of a T visa before? U visa? Okay, great. So famous last words from any lawyer. I'm going to try to keep it short so that we can hear from Rebecca and like think about all of these really exciting pieces together. Um, as folks may know, immigration law um, can be challenging when we're thinking about how to use it in a way that support, supports worker organizing because it doesn't provide for collective representation in the way employment law can. And so we have to represent individual clients. Um, and so for our office and for other immigration attorneys who are really interested in thinking about how we support the really amazing organizing that's happening across low-wage sectors led by immigrant workers, often immigrant women. Um, we have to think creatively about how do we uh, do our job in a way that coordinates and supports as opposed to segments out, right, individual person from individual person. And despite all the negative news about immigration, which I think we are all bombarded with all the time, I love this part of our work because I think it is a place where advocacy has created tremendous opportunities and it's a place where we can work together with organizers and also with practitioners that work in other areas to really um, not only highlight claims that already exist from the outset, but constructively make people eligible for protection um, in a way that I'm really excited about. So just really quickly, I'm going to focus on U visas. T visas are um, for trafficking victims, and we, our office certainly sees a lot of labor trafficking cases. Um, but today I'm going, to, I'm going to focus more on U visas, in part just because um, some of the circumstances that might qualify and how we think about how to use them can be a little bit broader. Um, but just really quickly on something that is important to know about T visas, which I think connects to the, it's the same analysis for U visas, is that it's this totality of circumstances test. So we know that abusive workplaces, it's, it's, uh, it's like a death by a thousand cuts, right? Sometimes we have like one horrible thing that has happened, but oftentimes we're talking about a coercive environment that's made up of perhaps small things, things that go on on an ongoing basis. And, um, depending on the individual's circumstances, one f kind of retaliation or one type of threat or pressure that's applied to somebody may or may not be um, as uh, intimidating or discouraging for one person as it might be for another, but the analysis is based on that individual person and their individual circumstances. How are these threats to fire you, threats to uh, kick you out of the place where you're working if you live in, physical, verbal abuse, threats of deportation, pressure, you know, economic harm to your family, how are all of these things coming together? Um, so U visas um, 
are for people who have suffered, who are the victims of certain types of crime and who have been or are likely to be helpful to law enforcement. And so I think two, the two things that I really want to talk about today are how do we make the certain crimes list work for us? And two, how do we make the, the reporting piece work for us? And how do we think about that as an incentive and a, and a, and a piece of supporting, uh, broader organizing? So certain crimes, one of, this is the list, um, the U visa statute has this list uh, of 28 crimes that can qualify for a U visa. Of course, we all know state law, you know, part of the analysis is what, what is going on under your state law that could count, you know, under these general definitions. A challenge for workplace U visas typically is that some of the most common things we see, wage theft, overtime violations, OSHA violations, are not reflected in this list. And so that's one of the obstacles that we are often encounter when we're thinking about how do we translate the abuse going on in a workplace for the immigration agency and explain why this person qualifies. Um, in this case, uh, I've, I've highlighted in uh, purple the some of the types of crimes that if someone among the other types of abuses, right, because we know when sexual harassment or sexual abuse is happening, it's part of this climate uh, of coercion where there's typically lots of other types of abuse happening at the same time. And so one um, opportunity we think when we have a scenario where unfortunately there's also sexual violence or harassment happening is that some of those scenarios are contemplated in the U visa list of qualifying crimes. And so when we think about, you know, forcible touching, for example, under New York law for abuse of sexual conduct, uh, contact, sexual assault, stalking, um, rape, there's uh, broad categories that we think uh, can be sort of the entry point to explaining why someone is eligible. Because again, once you have one thing that's happening that qualifies for a U visa, it's this kitchen sink ex uh, analysis. How harmful has this experience been to this person? And the wage theft, the isolation, the threats of deportation, uh, retaliation when you try to speak up about your conditions, all of those things can come in in a way that gives us an opportunity to really tell the whole story about the way power is exerted over workers. Um, and so I think that that is one thing that uh, when we're thinking about workplace U visa eligibility, uh, we should be thinking about um, because I do think it is an, an opportunity. Um, and the other thing that I would mention is USCIS has been educated over the last several years about why people who are victims of workplace abuse qualify for U visas. 75% are the statistics they say historically of the types of things that USCIS was used to seeing was domestic violence cases, uh, um, you know, uh, assault with a deadly weapon, like just sort of mugging on the street. Those were the kinds of things that they thought qualified. And so workplace abuse was something that at first they said, I don't like, we don't understand what you're talking about. This is clearly not something that qualifies. And so advocates have pushed very hard over the past several years to educate them on the realities of work conditions for uh, low wage workers and also to connect the dots. Right. And so uh, scenarios where we have workplace abuse, including sexual harassment, for us are an opportunity because it's like a bridge connecting historically recognized scenarios that deserve U visas with the broader um, abusive workplace conditions that the, that kind of contact is also happening in. So um, we think that uh, people who are bringing these cases now can really can really take advantage of the work that's been done so far um, to get the agency to a better place. Not to say uh, that any federal agency in this day and age is, you know, looking for ways to go to bat for low wage workers on a regular basis. The other thing that I would mention, the blue um, offenses include some of the other things that we often see in workplace abuse scenarios. Um, and so the second thing that I wanted to talk about is uh, an overlap between the finding the right crime and the reporting requirements. So there needs to be some um, report to a law enforcement agency, um, and that agency has to certify that the person has been or could be helpful to investigation about what's going on. What often happens for workplace crimes, again, some of the offenses that are most common are not contemplated as something that would qualify for a U visa, but oftentimes what happens um, is workers are organizing together 
they make a demand to their boss, they file a complaint with the DOL, and then what happens? The boss retaliates against them. And so the boss tries to fire them, tries to get them to sign false documents, says that you know X, Y, and Z will happen if you don't withdraw this complaint. And then we end up with obstruction of justice. We end up with perjury. We end up with witness tampering. And so uh, uh, it's one of those places where the really incredible work that um, is happening with organizers to build the collective power of the workers is also creating the conditions to essentially potentially make workers eligible for a U visa when they might not have been otherwise, because it's easier for us to explain why the retaliation, which we all know happens all the time, is uh, qualifies for a U visa because now it's a crime against the legal process because there's a process that is being interfered with by the employer's bad conduct, which again, we know is standard boss behavior. So um, this is like one of the things that we think is really exciting because oftentimes uh, I think lawyers can often feel like the lawyer in the organizing work is siloed or sometimes can feel like it's at cross purposes and how do we advance individual interests while also supporting the longer term campaign work. And I think that this is one of those examples where actually it's very aligned um, and it gives us an opportunity to both be supporting people on an individual basis, but in a way that's uh, helping do the norm and culture shifting work that we all know is so important um, because we know case by case is not gonna get us to where we need to be. Um, so I think that I'm gonna leave it there for now. Hopefully that gives us time to keep talking, um, but I'm really interested to hear if other people have been thinking about this and if we might collaborate together. I think there's, especially I'll just give a plug. If anybody is an employment or labor practitioner, I think there's a lot of opportunities right now to be working in closer collaboration with your immigration colleagues. Uh, and we invite, you know, that conversation. Thanks, Danielle. Um, also, I, I just, I really appreciate how um, your office is using this to sort of mitigate some of the, the problems created by people's fear of um, reporting the initial event, right? Um, so, so important. Um, because we are still running short on time, I'm turning it over now to um, the New York State um, to talk about, uh, I'm sorry, to Rebecca, I'm sorry, to talk about <laughs> um, anti-retaliation provisions in the New York State Wage and Hour Law and their work at the Department of Labor. Thanks so much. Um, some of you might be wondering, uh, the Department of Labor, since we don't have jurisdiction over sexual harassment, uh, what we're doing here or what we're doing for workers who are victims of sexual harassment. But um, I want to share with you that we're doing a lot. Um, so traditionally, uh, under the labor law, right, Section 215 protects workers from unlawful retaliation based on their protected activity of raising issues under the labor law. Uh, Governor Cuomo announced uh, in October 2015 that he was establishing this anti-retaliation unit. Previously, as some of you probably have encountered, the retaliation investigations were wrapped up in the payroll compliance investigations. And that presented the problem of investigators having to deal with pretext and getting past pretext um, and really not having the time to dedicate. And so um, our unit was created. We're two attorneys and two, we are getting our third investigator. And um, these investigators are trained by us, the attorneys, and they have become um, very, very skilled in getting past pretext and uh, conducting thorough investigations. So uh, generally, that's what our unit does. Um, any worker who comes to us who has been fired within, a, we have like a three month, general one to three month period, uh, those claims can be expedited if the worker tells us they want their work, back, uh, their job back. So we'll pick up the phone, we'll call the employer, see if we can resolve the issue right away. If the employer is reluctant um, or declines, uh, we'll proceed with a formal investigation. Uh, also, if workers who are being threatened with immigration, um, you know, work either we have the authority to walk into any business operating in the state of New York, we'll get out there, or we'll pick up the phone. Um, to explain that while the threat is also illegal, uh, it's it will get a lot worse. Uh, so don't make that phone call that you threatened to make. 
um, that's the traditional work that we're doing, more traditional work we're doing. As far as the work that we're doing for victims of sexual harassment, I wanted to focus on a little bit. Um, you know, when Laura was putting together the panel, she was saying she wasn't sure if they were going to put me on this panel or with the government panel. Um, I'm really happy to be on this panel, especially, I don't think Laura and her colleagues knew, but with um, my partners, uh, the, the state's partners with advocates and community-based um, community organizations. Um, we're doing a lot with, um, we've spent the past, I'd say, two to three years focusing on workers who are isolated and, and how the Department of Labor can assist with those workers who are isolated, who don't have the support system or don't have the resources or sometimes don't have the ability to, if they're on the farm, to leave the farm um, to go file complaints. We have our Division of Immigrant Policies and Affairs. Uh, it's called DEPA. And uh, DEPA goes out to the farms uh, every year to provide education. And among the education, they are providing sexual harassment training to both the workers. Uh, it was rolled out first to the female workers, um, and now it's being rolled out to the male workers, as well as to the employers. Um, our DEPA staff, uh, which is we have staff downstate and upstate. Um, if you're an immigration attorney, you may have dealt with Estelle Davis from our downstate office. She leads. Um, she leads that office. Um, they are all, we, we've done things as simple as get our DEPA staff um, notary. Uh, they're all, we, the state pays for them to all become notaries. And the reason we do that is because workers who are isolated, especially upstate, uh, can't leave the farm or would like assistance in completing their New York State uh, Division of Human Rights complaint. We will sit down and we will draft the complaint with them and our investigator will serve as the notary for that complaint. Downstate, we'll have conversations about whether it's something that should go to the city or should go to the state based on the situation, based on the law that's going to be most favorable to the worker. Um, and we, uh, and um, we will, um, you know, sit down. A lot, a lot of times you'll notice uh, if you've litigated that a lot of employment-based cases come to you because of an unemployment insurance hearing. Um, workers don't even know they're victims. They're in the unemployment insurance hearing and maybe the judge says to them, you know, you should go to the Labor Department or you should go to your human rights uh, to file a claim. And so um, we, we here at the at the state, we have a partner. We have an advocate's office at the unemployment insurance uh, division and uh, refer cases back and forth. Um, as Sunil was mentioning, we also have, uh, New York State has a law that you are entitled to your language preference. So um, all of our documents are translated to our top, oh gosh, seven or eight uh, languages, but any language, uh, every it's called uh, access to uh, access to language services, and um, anyone who calls the state uh, is entitled to have their language of preference, so uh, we make that, that available. Um, other things that we're doing, uh, when workers come to us and they uh, are talking about sexual harassment in the workplace, um, maybe in the past they would have been referred, just simply referred, oh, that's a human rights issue, don't tell us about that, and here are the numbers for human rights. Um, every worker that alleges a retaliatory action, which we define at the Department of Labor as an unfavorable action that's been taken against you, um, no matter how, uh, no matter how, if it seems even to be a, a small unfavorable action. Um, the investigators at the state are required, state labor department are required to take a statement and refer it to my office. So no workers turned away. Um, no, no worker can call, would, you know, call the department or walk into the department and be told, oh, that's a human rights issue, go to human rights, right? Every worker is referred to me personally, and um, I review every single allegation of retaliation that is brought to the state of New York, uh, to the Department of Labor, and it's assigned to one of my investigators or uh, the attorney who works for me. And we review it and we go over, uh, we will go over the allegations with the workers. So um, workers who have a hybrid claim, 
So sometimes they've complained about something. They're also a victim of sexual harassment or other human rights uh, victims. Um, you know, we'll, ex we'll take the time to explain to them that so workers are frequently just shoveled from, <laughs> you know, sh they shuttle, sorry, from um, agency to agency. It's very confusing for them. Um, if we see a worker that has multiple types of protected activity, we'll uh, recommend they meet maybe with one of our uh, partners uh, or free legal services or community-based organizations uh, so that they have some support in understanding who they're getting phone calls from, who they're getting mail from. We'll explain to them, you know, you might have a claim at the city or the state. That doesn't mean you can't pursue your claim here, right? Um, we hear often that employers say, oh, well, they're just complaining to every agency or uh, they're complaining to, um, you know, they're complaining, they're complaining they were a victim of wage theft and they were a victim of, protect, of uh, sexual harassment and it can't be both. Well, that's just ridiculous. It can be and is often both. And, um, you know, we explain that to workers. Um, so we're really careful in taking the time to explain to workers that you can have claims at multiple agencies. Uh, we explain, um, you know, you're choosing your remedy. You can either go to court or you can come to the Department of Labor. You can't do both. Um, so when workers come, a lot of times workers come to the Department of Labor as their first stop. Um, they don't know where to go, and they hear labor, they think workplace, so they come to us, and uh, my unit is taking a lot of care to uh, provide not just a blanket referral, uh, but um, some, some real explanation. Uh, now also, with a lot of our cases uh, where there's going to be a wage component and an, uh, a wage retaliation component, uh, or... I'm sorry, and a, and a city or state component, we will not just send workers, we'll pick up the phone. Um, and I have contacts at our state, at the state agency. I'm uh, in constant contact with Hollis Fitch at the city department. We have our contacts now at uh, NLRB. Um, and so we're picking up the phone and we're calling and we're having discussions uh, without, you know, we won't disclose a worker's name without their permission, but having discussions with other agencies. Um, recently, the State Division of Human Rights has, uh, for the first time, created a, a scenario where they're gonna start going out to the workplace. So they've asked to come with us because our team, our investigators are highly trained in uh, workplace investigations. And so we're partnering on those. We're also partnering with um, a, a citywide task force with the district attorneys. And, um, you know, we are, we have not brought a criminal retaliation case yet. We are still in the works with that. But as far as wage theft goes, we're, we're partnering. So um, we have a ton of resources at our um, fingertips. And when workers are retaliated against because they've raised um, any type of protected activity, we see it as our interest in, in doing something. Uh, if we can do a full investigation because there's a state labor issue, then uh, we certainly do. And uh, if not, we're calling our partners. So, um, and, and as I uh, said before, uh, the domestic workers, uh, we do have a, a trained investigator who's focusing on um, the isolated uh, workers uh, who, Ms. Castillo, she talks to all the uh, domestic workers and handles their cases and often consults with me um, the types of remedies that we can um, impose on a retaliation. And we're seeing with, with the domestic workers, especially the blacklisting, we thought it was really bad with the nail salon cases, the blacklisting. But um, at least in the nail salon cases, uh, the workers' work can actually speak for themselves when they go on an interview, and they're asked to do a um, they're asked to do sort of an audition. Um, with the domestic workers, they have no livelihood if they can't have a reference. And one of the remedies that Section 215 allows for, uh, if we're doing a, a retaliation case under the labor law. Uh, it has a catch-all provision that says any other remedy that the commissioner deems appropriate. 
And so we can negotiate what could be said in a reference. Um, so, you know, we're trying to deal with the blacklisting, the threat of blacklisting, um, a balance between education and enforcement. Um, and really do, be a one-stop resource for, how do for people, workers. Um, how do people get in touch with your office? If they have sure, so, um, yeah, and we are a certifying agency for UNT visas, so if there is an open labor investigation and um, your clients are a victim of trafficking or of a U visa qualifying crime, you should contact us. Um, we also screen workers ourselves that come in and then we'll refer them out to um, immigration, uh, you know, legal services, immigration legal services for. Um, I'm so sorry, Rebecca. I'm being told that we need to. Um, okay, so to take down. Yes, please. Okay. So the uh, phone number for the UNT visa certifications, you can actually email DIPA, D-I-P-A, at labor.ny.gov. And for uh, retaliation, you can just email me or call me directly. It's Rebecca.Nathanson at labor.ny.gov or 212-775-3675. And then I'll give it, but I don't suggest calling it. I suggest calling me. <laughs> um, the general number for the DOL, 888-4-NYS-DOL. Uh, workers, uh, attorneys, anonymous, anyone can call that number. And every single retaliation allegation uh, will be routed to me. And any trafficking or immigration-related issue will be routed to DEPA. Thank you so much. Um, as someone else on this panel said earlier, um, we're so glad that you exist as a resource again in New York State. And thank you for giving us um, your direct contact information. It's very helpful. Um, we have a couple of questions, and I know that we have to also maybe shut down. So. We can, how about we can stay? Yeah. People, yeah. Yes. That's a good idea. Actually, we so those of us on the panel who are willing to stay and answer some of these questions, uh, there are really a couple of questions primarily about in the immigration context, how the UNT visa process works. Um, so maybe Danielle and I can stick around and um, talk to anyone who's interested. Um, otherwise, I believe the um, the next portion of the um, of the session today is happening, the lunch portion. <laughs> <laughs> the lunch portion has some events as well. So thank you so much. <laughs>